my name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 37, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Exodus 15 and 16, Leviticus 11, and Psalms 53. The Song of Moses and Miriam, Exodus 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them for your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her. With timbrels and dancing, Miriam sang to to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes— 
If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there was twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to, the, to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little, and when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. 
That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And Omer is one-tenth of an FF. Leviticus 11. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that lived on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is a ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Of all the creatures living in the water of the sea and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. But all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the other living creatures in the water, you are to regard as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you must not eat their meat. You must regard their carcasses as unclean. Anything living in the waters that does not have fins and scales is to be regarded as unclean by you. These are the birds you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the cormorant, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe, and the bat. All flying insects that walk on all fours are to be regarded as unclean by you. There are, however, some flying insects that walk on all fours that you may eat. Those have jointed legs for hopping on the ground. Of these, you may eat any kind of locust, catid, cricket, or grasshopper, but all other flying insects that have four legs you are to regard as unclean. You will make yourselves unclean by these. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean till evening. Whoever picks up one of their carcasses must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. Every animal that does not have a divided hoof or that does not chew the cud is unclean for you. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them will be unclean. All of the animals that walk on all fours, those that walk on their paws, are unclean for you. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean till evening. Anyone who picks up their carcass must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till the evening. These animals are unclean for you. Of the animals that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. The weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, and the chameleon. Of all those that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. Whoever touches them when they are dead will be unclean till evening. When one of them dies and falls on something, that article, whatever its use, will be unclean, whether it is made of wood, cloth, hide, or sackcloth. 
put it in water, it will be unclean till evening, and then it will be clean. If one of them falls into a clay pot, everything in it will be unclean, and you must break the pot. Any food you are allowed to eat that has come into the contact with water from any such pot is unclean, and any liquid that is drunk from such a pot is unclean. Anything that one of their carcasses falls on becomes unclean. An oven or cooked pot must be broken up. They are unclean, and you are to regard them as unclean. A spring, however, or a cistern for collecting water remains clean, but anyone who touches one of these carcasses is unclean. If a carcass falls on any seeds that are to be planted, they remain clean. But if water has been put on the seed and a carcass falls on it, it is unclean for you. If an animal that you are allowed to eat dies, anyone who touches its carcass will be unclean till evening. Anyone who eats some of its carcass must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. Anyone who picks up the carcass must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. Every creature that moves along the ground is to be regarded as unclean. It is not to be eaten. You are not to eat any creature that moves along the ground, whether it moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet. It is unclean. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy because I am holy. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water, and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. Psalms 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour many people as though eating bread. They never call on God. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them in shame, for God despises them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So one thing I love about the story we're reading, which started in yesterday's conversation, is that while we are reading warrior language, it is between God and the adversary, Egypt's army in this case. One of my favorite verses is one we read yesterday, Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. While we are called into the story to be actors, there are moments in the story when we are not able, not capable of bringing that fight to the adversary for a number of reasons. That's why this story is so important and special, because we all will experience this at one time or another in our lives and can use this story to intercede in prayer for others and give them this message from this story. This does not mean that everything is a fight or that everything we don't like, God will fight against because while God is for us, he is wisdom itself. We trust and operate in his world. He doesn't operate as an actor in our story where we are wisdom and we set the right and wrong rules and we set the timing of when, where, and how. But we trust that in the bigger picture of a kingdom with no end, where we will be with him forever, and there are times as the enemy seems overwhelming, and these are the times to recite this verse over and over. That's how I feel. The Lord will fight for you, and you need only be still. 
I'm reminded of the New Testament story, which is repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus got on a boat with his disciples and a furious storm came upon them. The disciples are afraid and Jesus asked them in Mark 440, do you still have no faith? I wonder if the disciples assume that with Jesus in the boat, perhaps there wouldn't or shouldn't be any storms. And so they doubted him as Lord. But then they witnessed that the waves and wind are at his command, like we see here in Exodus. The point I'm reminded of is that God does not promise that there will be no storms in our state of alienation and dislocation. But he promises over and over again, we've been reading, when we ask for details and plans, God so so often simply replies with relationship. I will be with you. Psalms 23 verse 4, which I think so many of us know, I think it's sometimes misunderstood to mean that God will protect us, meaning avert crisis from ever happening to us. When the verse actually says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice we're still walking through the valley of the shadow of death because we live in a state of alienation and dislocation. The adversary is here and we're capable of pulling away from God and hurting each other. The verse is pointing to the relationship of God to us, the sovereignty of God over all things and the larger kingdom story at hand. I think death here is complicated and it could be physical. It could be a spiritual adversarial warfare. It could mean people who are preying on other people, having given themselves over to darkness. God gave us a portion of power and authority, an agency that he commissioned us to use in creation, in caring, in ruling, in subduing, and also to become a kingdom of priests. Yet, we can use this agency to harm each other and creation. We can join the adversary in working against what God created, ordered, and purposed for flourishing. When I think of it in light of Genesis 3, death may not be referring to an immediate physical death of our current human bodies. Adam and Eve didn't drop dead physically when they sinned. But by not choosing God, they chose the opposition of creation, the opposite of the creator. They chose the way of the adversary, and to be an adversary of God leads to a type of death that is ominous and the opposite of what we were made for. It's like pulling into the shadows instead of staying where it's warm and light. It's so awesome to reflect on the sovereignty of God and yet the portion of his power and authority he gave us to be lead actors in the story. Moreover, I am overwhelmed by the grace God gives us to be part of this story. He is just, he is merciful, he is our rescuer, he's our redeemer, he's our creator capable of making something from nothing and restoring and renewing all things. He's calling us into this story and purpose. I've got to tell you, I've never really paused on this part of the story for very long. But Dr. Carmen Imes' free Exodus course on the Bible Project really helped me zoom into this part of the story. She calls it the Song of the Sea. And as we read, both Moses sings and Miriam sings, and God isn't telling him to do this. They're just putting him on display. And Miriam is being reintroduced here, which is pretty cool. She was the six-year-old sister, um, about three years older than Moses in the earlier part of this story. And what we're reading in this song, the Song of the Sea, Dr. Carmen Imes describes it in four phases, victory, renown, creation, and rest. A few fun details Dr. Carmen Imes um, points out here are worth noting. One, 
The story talks about God's nose blowing out wind, which moves into the sea over the enemies pursuing the fleeing Israelites. It was common in the ancient Hebrew writing to use nose as an idiomatic figurative expression for anger. Like think about a nose flaring, right? When someone is mad. And later in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Dr. Imes describes how the expression of a long nose is used to convey God's character attributed of being slow to anger. That's so cool. And while the ancient Hebrew world may may have its own idiomatic figurative expressions, we certainly have our own today too. Like if we say something is giving someone is giving us the stink eye or a cold shoulder, we know what that means. And can you imagine someone outside our culture hundreds of years from now reading it and trying to make sense of that? <laughs> kind of makes me laugh. And it's a beautiful reminder that the Bible was written for us, not directly to us. So reading the Bible is like studying abroad a bit to understand it well and reduce the likelihood of misunderstanding and misrepresentation, we have to keep leaning into our understanding of the original language and cultural context to read out of scripture the wisdom God wants to share instead of unintentionally reading our own culture into it and or skipping over these really important discerning insights we would have otherwise missed. In this first theme, victory, that Dr. Carmen Iman describes, we see how Yahweh's sovereignty was depicted over all the other gods and how he is justice itself. Dr. Imes gives tremendously more detail in her amazing class, but I love how she describes God's justice as a lex, she calls it a lex talionis, a punishment that fits the crime. And it really is, um, it makes more sense as she's describing it in Hebrew. So God's justice is not ever revenge or vengeance, We keep reading how God gives a portion of authority and power to people, and he's slow to anger. But when we keep corrupting and decreating with our portion of power and authority, there is this point at which God says, enough is enough. And not in a vengeful or retribution type of way, but with extreme precision and typically a way out through mercy. God brings justice and turns those who refuse over to decreation and corruption. They have chosen over God himself and the purpose they were created for, decreation. And this song anticipates all of this, right? So perhaps it's like the marketing message that is used to pass down this important story for generations to come. I mean, songs can do that, right? And we know from the prophetic message here and those we have read ahead, and if, if you've read ahead, in Joshua 2, 8 through 11, the testimony of Rahab, a Canaanite woman, that this song will re- be referred back to. Dr. Imes describes how the poetry in the Torah can convey the heart of its theology. The Israelites do not feel truly free. Their freedom is incomplete until the imminent threat of re-enslavement no longer exists. So it's not just like the running out, but the prevention of, of the adversary getting you again. The second theme in the song Dr. Imes describes is renown, which has to do with the reputation of God. And the third theme, creation, the creation of Israel as a new nation, not just a couple, a family, a tribe, an enslaved people group, but a new nation. There is an echoing back in the Hebrew word choices in this story to Genesis 1-2, where God used uncreation or in creation, decreation, the Hebrew word is tahom, the deep waters, the same as Genesis 1-2 to describe covering the Egyptian army. Then the Israelites walking through dry ground in parentheses, which echoes back to the same Hebrew words in Genesis 1, 9 through 10. It's a rare way of writing, speaking to point back to God's creation. The last theme of the song is rest. 
which I think is sometimes confused with like Netflix and chill. But in Hebrew, it's better understood as this like dwelling place, a place to rule and reign, to be and become, living and flourishing in purpose. It points back to Genesis 2, a special place where we're in a special relationship with special benefits to be with God in this special place forever. And the purpose and the meaning is to flourish. It's found in being a blessing to others and being blessed. It's this interconnected sense that's much deeper and more complex than I think we understand the word rest to mean. And this will require some training. After years of enslavement and a long history of alienation and dislocation, with only small remnants of faithful moments of individuals and families to God through his grace, his commissioning, and his covenant, this training um, is that we're seeing out in this desert is making contrast between what God wants and what the people were doing, um, and it's being made clearer in Leviticus. It's it's like we can see this. We have to be retrained. I want to point to the fact that the end of Exodus and Leviticus again are uncomfortable for many reasons, but one is the is the liminality, the in between, the letting go of the past and learning to live into the story God has for us. The next chapter in the story. We've all experienced that if we've moved to a new place or even just moving from something like, you know, elementary school to high school, high school into the world or college, college into career. Like there's sometimes this liminality where you're letting go of one thing and you're reaching for or learning for something else. And I think that's what we're seeing played out here. In Leviticus, we are starting to talk about purification or what is clean and unclean. And I think it's important, as Dr. Tim Mackey points out, to understand that some things in Leviticus are about laws that are moral, like things like don't gossip and provide for widows and orphans, which we'll be reading about. And some laws are purity or symbolic laws that are an expressing ex- expression of worldview to others. For example, the purifying symboling points towards our need for a real redeemer. Jesus Christ, that represents life itself and cleanses us in a non-redeemed way of living in symbolically impure, unclean things in this Levitical story leads to death or separation. It resembles a little bit of Genesis, where in Genesis uh, 2, we're told not to eat from the tree. And we're like, why not? It looks good. I don't really get it. So similarly here, our reaction might be like, I don't get it. Why are these animals or these things clean and unclean? But I think the bigger or maybe more important thing here is God is asking a similar question. Will we choose our own ways or will we trust in him and recognize that he's our creator and have faith in his wisdom and reputation Or will we say no and to try to create our own truth, our own wisdom, our own everything? Dr. Tim Mackey talks about how some towns have building codes where no new buildings can be higher than a state capital. It's about symbolism, not that they can't or shouldn't. Like the case here, it revolves around God as the source of life and that this keeps them from things that are unclean. And I think it's important not to be like, overly focused on the material itself, but the function and what it represents in terms of uh, living for him and listening and trusting him versus the opposite. The story is important because it's instilling and reflecting this incredibly important aspect into the narrative, which is that God's way leads to life and our way leads to death. We'll unpack more of this complexity in the coming days. It's really hard to read and wrap our minds around, even loosely, right? But can't wait to be back with you next time. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11 
that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.